No list of things I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No separation from the world. No work I do. No gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, which is what we just sang. So in short, there is nothing in you or in me that can make our dead heart alive. Only Jesus. Only through Jesus can we be made alive. Only through Jesus who suffered and died in my place for my sin can I be forgiven by a holy God. Only Because of Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' moral perfection, can my account be credited with the perfection in God's court of Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus can I be forgiven of my sins, which are many. Only through Jesus can we receive the peace that the Bible says surpasses all human understanding. Peace both now and peace for all of eternity. And that kind of forgiveness is extravagant. And that kind of extravagant forgiveness should result in extravagant love for Jesus Christ our Savior. Because as we will see this morning, those who are forgiven little, love little. And those who are forgiven much, love much. So grab your Bible if you haven't done so already and open with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we will be on page 864. We are... Picking up well into the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus, he has impacted many by now. He has healed the sick, he's cleansed the leprous, he's raised the dead, and in the process, he's also drawn attention from the scribes and from the Pharisees, from the religious elite. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 34 that we looked at last week, Jesus is accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we will see this morning in our text that that is not only true, but that is incredibly good news for us. So follow along if you would, Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 36. The word of the Lord says, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the scene is a first century Jewish home, as is the case in many Middle Eastern cultures even today. Mealtimes were public, not necessarily private events. Not that anyone could come to a meal, but virtually anyone could watch, could look in the windows and look in the doors. A house like this in the first century would have had a center courtyard where the meal would have taken place and surrounding the courtyard would have been colonnades and rooms that opened into the courtyard with windows open and doors open so that people on the streets, people in the neighborhood could stop, could stand in the colonnade or could look through the windows and could see and hear what was going on. This was essentially a form of entertainment in the first century, especially on this night. Because on this night, Jesus, the popular and controversial preacher, was the special guest of honor. Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, we're not told much about the host, except his name was Simon, and he was a Pharisee. So he was a Jewish religious leader. We don't know if he invited Jesus to learn from Jesus or if he invited Jesus to trap Jesus. In some ways, this narrative may sound familiar because this is the second time Jesus is anointed, or or to be more technical, the first time Jesus is anointed, he will be anointed again. In fact, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12 all record the second occasion when Jesus is anointed. 
leading some to believe maybe this is all just one event. But it's not. We know it's not because the second anointing happens in Bethany, and we're not in Bethany. The second anointing happens during the week of Jesus' crucifixion. This is not yet the week of Jesus' crucifixion. And the second event concerns Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who is named in the other accounts, and we are not told this woman's name at all. The only thing that we know about this woman, other than what she does here, is that she is known in the city as a sinner. We can see that from verse 37. We can also see that from Simon's response to her. He knows that she is a sinner. Now, Some have speculated that she is a prostitute. That could be, but we are given no indication in the text as to what her sin actually is. Luke does not include the details about her sin, and I think he probably does so specifically because the important reality in this text is not what her sin actually is, but rather that she is a sinner who will be forgiven. It's probably better for us to leave it vague as well rather than to speculate on what her sin is. But notice in verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So this woman gets wind that Jesus is in the area, and so she comes and she does what she does here in the text. She likely knows, she likely knows that she is unwelcome. She likely knows that her presence as a notorious sinner is not wanted, especially in the home of this Jewish religious elite like Simon. But she comes anyway. Somewhere, somehow, she has likely heard Jesus preach and teach. Maybe she's heard the good news of complete forgiveness of sin for all who repent and believe the gospel. Maybe she's seen a miracle or two of Jesus. And the Lord has opened her heart to see her sin, to see the salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we'll get to this in just a bit, but I think there's pretty good evidence that she has already experienced the saving work of Jesus in her life when she comes. She is already a changed woman. And so she comes in total gratitude to thank Jesus the best way she knows how. Verse 37 says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume As was the custom, Jesus and the other dinner guests would have been reclining. They would have been kind of laying on their side, eating from a low table in the center of the room. They would have had their heads towards the table and kind of like wheels or spokes on a wheel, their legs and feet would have extended outward. This gave access to Jesus' feet for this woman. She's so overcome with love and gratitude to Jesus, that all she can do is stand there at the feet of Jesus and weep. Her tears running down her cheeks and falling onto Jesus' 
feet. And then having no towel to dry his feet, she takes her hair. Hair that 1 Corinthians 11.15 says is a woman's crown and glory. And she uses her hair as a rag. She wipes his feet clean and then anoints him with the anointment that she's with the ointment that she's brought and she kisses them. Now, if all of this were not striking enough, the Greek verbs here for kissing and anointing could be better translated was kissing and was anointing. And when you add that to what Jesus says in verse 45, that from the time Jesus, this woman arrived, she has not stopped kissing Jesus' feet, it just adds to the drama. This woman is so overcome with gratitude that she throws her dignity to the side, that she might lavishly pour out her heart in these actions of love and worship. She cannot stop kissing the feet of Jesus. Well, all of this is too much for Simon. If he had any thoughts that Jesus might be a prophet, those thoughts are long gone. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, a Pharisee like Simon would not have had any contact with a known sinner like this woman. And Simon seems pretty sure that Jesus, if he were really a prophet, wouldn't have any contact with her either. You can imagine Simon thinking to himself, Jesus is clearly not a prophet. If he was, he would know that she's a sinner. He would have told her to leave. He would have told her to get away from him. And at a minimum, at minimum, he would not have let this go on this long. Notice in the text, who does Simon say this to? He doesn't say it to the dinner crowd. He doesn't say it to the people gathered around. Who does Simon talk to? He says this to himself. He's thinking this to himself, possibly kind of muttering this under his breath, which makes Jesus' response to him all the more revealing. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. Jesus knows the, the few words that Simon mutters, perhaps under his breath to himself, which should have been an indication to Simon that Jesus really is a prophet. And then Jesus tells Simon about two men who owed money to a money lender. One owed the equivalent of 20 months worth of wages. 
approximately eighty to $100,000. The other owed two months' worth of wages, approximately eight to $10,000. And then, in unmerited grace, the lender cancels the debt of both. And Jesus asks the question, okay, Simon, which man will love the lender more? You can almost sense a sly smile, perhaps, coming across Simon's face. This is an easy question with an easy answer. And Simon answers in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. But Jesus is not done. Look at verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my head, my feet with ointment. So if Simon had any confidence at all after answering Jesus' question correctly, that confidence was about to vanish completely as Jesus turns towards the woman and speaks to Simon. You can imagine the striking scene in this woman as Jesus has turned fully to face the woman and potentially continues to face her throughout the rest of this dialogue through verse 50. Jesus is facing, looking at this woman while speaking to Simon. And he asked Simon a rhetorical question. Simon, do you see this woman? Now that's a rhetorical question because Simon has clearly not seen this woman. Oh, Simon has seen her sin. Simon has seen her as a violation of the dignity of his home. He has seen her as a misfit who doesn't belong in such austere company. But he has not truly seen this woman. But Jesus does. Jesus sees this daughter of Abraham, heir of the promises of God. He sees this woman who is made in the image of God. This woman of worth and value and dignity. He sees this one for whom sin has trapped and lied to and stolen from. He sees this woman who is a sinner, yes, but her sin does not define her. Her sin is not her identity. You can imagine the kind eyes of Jesus, which it seems never leave this woman as he confronts Simon. You see, all this has taken place at Simon's house, and yet as Jesus clearly reveals, Simon has not been hospitable. This culture of honor and shame, it was an insult to receive a guest improperly. So to properly receive a guest, you'd have a servant of the house greet them and wash their feet, which would have been dirty from the roads. 
A proper host would have greeted the guest of honor with a kiss on the cheek and anointed their head with oil. But Jesus makes it clear that Simon didn't do any of this. He didn't even extend the basic courtesies given to a guest, which in this culture was tantamount to an insult. But this woman, this daughter of Abraham, does. She more than makes up for Simon's careless or calculated insult. In fact, just scan your eyes through verses 44 through 46, where Simon offered no water for Jesus' feet. She gave her tears to Jesus. Where Simon offered no towel to dry his feet, she gave her hair. Where Simon failed to greet Jesus with a kiss on the cheek, she did not stop kissing his feet. Where Simon failed to anoint Jesus' head with oil, she anointed his feet with ointment. You see, although Jesus was at Simon's home, Jesus shows that Simon wasn't really the host after all. Instead, it was this woman who was Jesus' host. Simon sought to justify himself before Jesus, to sit in judgment over this woman. But this woman, her eyes are only on Jesus. She expresses the love and the gratitude of genuine repentance, and the contrast could not be bigger. Simon. This Pharisee fails to see himself as a sinner in need of God's grace. And this woman, this sinner, is profoundly aware of her sin and how she undeserved the forgiveness of Christ. Commentator David Garland writes, This is the amazing scene of an indignant Pharisee trying to keep his composure and a teary-eyed woman with loosened hair showing unrestrained devotion. Here, a repentant sinner responds to forgiveness while a Pharisee rejects God's verdict that he too is a sinner who needs forgiveness and hence rejects God's mercy on others. The focus, however, is on Jesus, not the Pharisee or the woman, and it highlights the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist, who you'll remember we talked about last week, who both preached the same message of repentance. But Jesus is a prophet, but more than a prophet, he is the messianic prophet who brings forgiveness for sin. Jesus is unlike any other prophet, any other teacher. And just look at verse 47. Jesus, again, speaking to Simon, while likely looking at this woman, says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were with him at table began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
So the centerpiece of this story is right here, verses 47 through 50. And I want to slow it down just a little bit so we don't miss or misinterpret what's going on here. So it becomes clear that at some point in time, this woman has heard the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we know this because she already has faith in Jesus when she comes to him on this evening. And we know that she already has faith because Jesus tells her that this demonstration of love was her response to being forgiven. He who is forgiven little loves little, he who is forgiven much loves much. So if her extravagant love demonstrated towards Jesus was because of her forgiveness, verse 47, then she was a forgiven woman when she encountered Jesus on this night. In fact, in verse 47, the the words in your English translation that are probably translated are forgiven in the Greek are in the, the perfect tense. It's Really, the words have been forgiven. It implies that her sins have been forgiven prior to this scene. And so Jesus' announcement serves as a public confirmation of what she already knew. It served as a public notice that this notorious sinner has been forgiven by God. Now you might think, well, why is that important? Why is it important that she was forgiven before she came? And that her love, her demonstration here, was out of the overflow of her forgiveness. The love that came from being forgiven. Why is that significant? Why not just, she came here, she demonstrated her love, and as a result, Jesus forgave her. The the importance is huge. And it has everything to do with the grounds of our salvation. You see, if... She had been forgiven because of this lavish display of love for Jesus. Then her salvation would rest both on the grace of Jesus Christ and her work to lavishly demonstrate her love, to pour out her love to Jesus. You are forgiven because you did this. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says your faith has saved you. We know that our faith is simply a gift of God that we respond to. And so it's significant that we understand, I think the text makes it clear, that this woman was forgiven by trusting in Jesus Christ. And out of her incredible love, having been forgiven much, she now comes to Jesus to lavish her love upon this one who has forgiven her. So we would love to know more of the details about exactly how all of that happened, how all of that took place. Let me just kind of reconstruct, in my opinion, so you're going to get my opinion for the next 36 seconds, my opinion about what may have happened. We don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but putting together the details of the fact that she already is trusting, she already has faith, she comes to Jesus hearing that he's in town, this is perhaps what could have happened. It seems likely that she had heard Jesus teaching and preaching the good news of the gospel. The good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit upon 
hearing this gospel message replaces her sin-loving heart of stone with a Jesus-loving heart of flesh. And she is given the gift of faith and she believes. Because we know that the only thing, according to Jonathan Edwards, that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And she is then so overcome with joy at the forgiveness and at the peace that she has found in Jesus that she wants more than anything to demonstrate her gratitude and love. And so, likely, hearing that Jesus is in the area, she crashes this white-collar dinner party to lavish her love on Jesus the only way she knows how. Now, again, we don't know the exact timeline and the exact details. Luke doesn't deem that important for us to know, so it's not. But what we do know is that she was saved by faith in Jesus, according to verse 50. And that this salvation meant that she could now live in the peace of Christ, the shalom of God. Don't you love the way Jesus closes this in verse 50? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is not just like peace or like peace out or like just chill, lady. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 1, peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Where formerly we were enemies with God. We were rebels to the cause of God. Where formerly it was only the wrath of God being poured out upon us for our sin. Now, Peace has been established, peace in our time, peace for all time, through Jesus Christ. We can imagine, it's not hard to imagine, that this woman's life prior to conversion was probably not marked by peace. It may have been marked by suffering, likely marked by fear, guilt, doubt. And Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You have peace with God. You see, fundamentally, this is the true story of a changed heart. It's the true story of God opening a woman's heart as she hears Jesus teach and preach. It's the true story of the simple faith of a notorious sinner and the true story of a changed life as a result. It's the true story of the lavish love that flows from one who knows they are unworthy of forgiveness, which makes them cherish it all the more. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, forgiven. And at the same time, this is the story of a self-righteous Pharisee, a man who sat in judgment over this woman and Jesus, a man who saw the righteousness of God as something to be earned through merit, not received by faith alone. 
Like, this is the story of two lives. One who thought salvation was his to achieve, and one who grasped by faith the very thing she knew she could never deserve. And this is also the story of a crowd watching with eyes wide and mouths agape, no doubt. Luke records their response in verse 49. Then those who were with him at table began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? You can imagine maybe some nudging one another, elbowing each other, leaning over like, Who is this guy? Who invited him? Maybe they'd not heard of Jesus. Maybe they didn't know who he was. Maybe they'd never seen Jesus before. Maybe they'd not heard of the remarkable power with which he could do miracles. Certainly they were caught off guard by Jesus forgiving this woman's sin. I mean, this woman, of all people, this woman, you're going to forgive her sin? I think Luke puts 49 here, includes this in the narrative, because this is a question we are all supposed to ask. Who is Jesus? Who is this who even forgives sin? And so in one sense, this true story ends with clarity. This woman, this formerly a sinner, now a saint, goes in the peace of God. But in another sense, this story is open-ended because we don't know how Simon or anyone else uh, responded for that matter. What will Simon do? What will the crowd do? What will the people around the table do? What will the people in the windows and in the doorways do? Will they repent and show overwhelming love for Christ? Will Simon? Or will he rage because Jesus implies that Simon is just as sinful and needy as this woman was? Was. What will they do? What will you do? You see, this isn't just a story of something that took place 2,000 years ago. This is the true story of Christ saving a sinner. And the reality is, even 2,000 years later, Christ still saves sinners in the very same way. The very same God. The very same Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. And so the question is for us today, will we turn from our sinful self-reliance, our sin-minimizing, Christ-ignoring efforts at self-improving salvation, will we fall on our knees before the Son of God who forgives all who turn from Him by faith alone, regardless of sin? What will you do? I draw this to a close this morning with just two points of application, both highly profound. First, Jesus saves sinners. It is highly profound, isn't it? Jesus saves 
sinners. In fact, that's the only kind of people Jesus saves. This means that there is no one too sinful for Jesus' saving grace. No one too lost to be found by Christ. We are called then to see that Jesus saves sinners, which means we recognize our need of being saved. John MacArthur writes, the damned think they are good. The saved know they are wicked. The damned believe the kingdom of God is for those worthy of it. The saved know the kingdom of God is for those who realize how unworthy they are. The damned believe eternal life is earned. The saved know it is a gift. The damned seek God's condemnation. Commendation. The saved seek his forgiveness. You see, Simon was blissfully unaware of his dead, sinful heart. And at the same time, this woman saw that salvation is wholly a gift of God. And this is incredibly good news for you and for me. It's incredibly good news for a blind and sinful world. This means that we can pray that God would open the eyes and change the hearts of those who are dead in sin. And know that God is powerful to act. That he can do it. And this means that no one is too far. It means we can pray even this morning for the hearts of the Talibani leaders, knowing that just as he saved a terrorist named Paul, he can save anyone. It means, parents, you can pour out your heart to God, praying for your unsaved son or daughter. And know that God has the power to save. It means, kids, you can pour out your hearts praying that God would save dad or mom or an aunt or an uncle knowing that God is powerful to save. Like who, who in your life seems too out of reach? Maybe it's because they're too hardened or too sinful or they seem too far from Christ or maybe they are too familiar with the gospel. They've heard it over and over and over and over and over again and yet have failed to repent and believe. And you are tempted to think, ah, that'll never happen. My guess is this woman would have been on many people's list like that. Too sinful, too hardened, too far gone, too in love with her sin perhaps. Who would that be in your life? And maybe the reality is that person is you. Like maybe you're on someone else's list this morning. Would you repent and believe in Jesus Christ today? The Son of God who came and lived perfectly and died in our place. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died as a substitute for all who believe. 
that all who trust and believe in Jesus Christ will live having our sins nailed to the cross with Jesus. You see, the only openings in God's kingdom are places reserved for sinners. And this means as a church, we can be bold in our gospel proclamation. (laughs) We can be bold as we speak the gospel in conversations throughout the week. Even where we feel inadequate, even where we feel scared or uncomfortable or insecure, don't feel like we know all the answers because we know that God in his wisdom has choose to use the instrument of the proclamation of the gospel as the means by which he awakens dead hearts and opens blind eyes. And he chooses to use even our imperfect, stuttering, stammering, insecure communications of the timeless gospel of Jesus Christ to save his elect. This leads us then to our second and final point of application this morning, which is this. Never forget your desperate need for the grace of Christ. You see, as much as I would love to see myself in the place of this woman in the narrative, if I were honest, I can often, so often, be much more like Simon. I can tend to minimize my sin so that I can feel closer to Jesus. I can tend to think that I'm better than I am. I can tend to think, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. As though somehow the stain of sin in my life can be remedied by simply a small dose of of the gentle and easy baby detergent. That it's the the other people in my life, some other people that I know, they're the ones with sins different from mine. They need the invasive, deep-cleaning, bleach-infused variety. I just need a little tune-up here and there. And so Jesus' words, the one who is forgiven little loves little, and the one who is forgiven much loves much, have, in my own soul, even this week, had the same effect as stepping on a nail. You see, this woman would not have acted this way if she had not felt overwhelming gratitude for being forgiven. And Simon would not have acted this way if he had not convinced himself that he had little need of forgiveness. And oh, how we can so easily convince ourselves that we are better than we are. I am not saying we grovel as Christians, as those who are saved, that we somehow forget the grace of Christ, that we somehow identify ourselves still with our sin, that we continue to think of ourselves in the category of sinner instead of saint. I am saying that we rejoice in the forgiveness of God, that we delight that through the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been transferred from darkness to light. But I am saying we should never leave the feet of Jesus, recognizing it is wholly a gift of his grace by which we are saved. And not the result of our works. So that we may not boast. Jesus is clear Simon is a sinner too. But it's just that his sins seem more respectable than this woman's. 
His sins are sin of pride and arrogance and hard-heartedness and insensitivity and judgmentalness. Things that we can often, if we're not careful, overlook and dismiss as though they're not real sins. Again, Garland, the, the commentator, writes, because he, Simon, has no consciousness of his totally irretrievable sinful condition before God, he has no sense of an absolute indebtedness to God or of unmerited grace. He has never had the experience of having an IOU torn up. He could boast in his uprightness attained through his own achievements and look down on all others who have not achieved the same spiritual level that he had. And the result is that he has no real love for God and no real love for others. You see, repentance is the hardest for those who feel no need to cast themselves on the mercy of God. In fact, I would say that repentance is impossible for those who feel no need to cast themselves on the mercy of God because that's what repentance is. You see, one of these two people was broken and humbled at the feet of Jesus. And the other one of the benefits of Jesus' presence without the humility of complete surrender. John Newton, the hymn writer who famously wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, put it beautifully when near the end of his life, he wrote this. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest. And he welcomes the vilest. And he welcomes the poor. Because our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And what riches of kindness He lavished upon us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy. is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness and new every single morning. Our sins, they are many. His mercy.